0: This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. From Jonah, we're just starting this series in Jonah, but I do hope that you had a fabulous Christmas and a relax and that you've got back to the gym and you're looking forward to a great 2019. let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Can you face the real God? Can you face the real God? The problem we have is that the true God, the God of the Bible, the God we meet in Jesus isn't contained by our preferences and prejudices. He isn't merely a projection on a large canvas of our dreams and desires. He's far more ornery than that. He's far more inconvenient and even a bit annoying than that. God's inconvenience is exactly what the prophet Jonah discovers in the short book that's called After Him. Now, like many parts of the Bible, you may have dismissed the story of Jonah as a tale for children. You probably remember what from the book of Jonah. What's the standout feature, Jonah and the... No, it's a big fish, but, you know, who cares? You know that there's something that happens in that he gets gets swallowed, right? But don't be fooled by its simplicity. Like many parts of the Bible, the simple telling of a story gives us profound insight into ourselves and into God. It can be understood by children, but it can change the lives of adults. And as we'll see, it's not a tale with everything neatly wrapped up at the end. Now the story opens the way many books of prophecy in the Old Testament open. You can see that from verse 1, with the word of the Lord coming to the prophet. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That seems pretty ordinary so far. But when we know a few things about Jonah and a few things about Nineveh, we find out that this little verse is actually far more interesting than that. Firstly, we know that Jonah was an ardent Israelite nationalist. In 2 Kings 14, we hear that he had supported one of Israel's wicked kings, Jeroboam II, in his policy of strengthening Israel's borders. Well, he didn't build a wall around those borders, but you get the picture, right? If he had a vote, he probably would have voted one nation. He was an Israelite and he followed the God of Israel the God who had made promises to his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who seemed to specially favour them. He had a Make Israel Great Again t-shirt in his cupboard. Secondly, Jonah was an ardent nationalist, that's the first thing. Secondly, what about Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital, a great city, the capital of an empire, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, And this was an extremely violent place indeed. They were the implacable enemies of Israel. Well, actually, they were the implacable enemies of everybody. Emperor Shalmaneser III, rough contemporary of Jonah, he depicted the dismemberment and decapitation of his enemies on huge stone relief panels that we still can see today. One of these panels has one of the Israelite kings, Jehu, shown bowing down in obeisance to Shalmaneser. These were the sort of people who yanked out prisoner of war's tongues and then flayed them alive so that they could display their skins on the walls of the conquered cities. They were a byword for cruelty. So Jonah, ardent Israelite nationalist, was being called on to go and tell this violent people that they are wicked, And that God is going to judge them for their sin. How do you think he felt about that? Well, his reaction is predictable, isn't it? He says, I'm out of here. That's what we see in the next couple of verses. Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, there's a port city, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Is Jonah simply afraid or is something more going on? Now, we don't actually know where Tarshish is other than it was known as the furthest place you could go on the Mediterranean map in those days. It was the sort of lightning ridge or the broken hill of its day. It was as far as you could go. It was where you went to escape and get away. You couldn't be further in the opposite direction... Traveling west of where you were supposed to go, traveling east, if you were Jonah. Why does Jonah run? Well, the idea that you could flee from the presence of the Lord is something a prophet of the Lord should have realized is impossible. That's a strange thing about this verse. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and yet he knows that's impossible because he should know that God is not just the God of Israel. God is not located in one space. God is going to be God in Tarshish, as much as he is in Israel. Is Jonah simply afraid of being dismembered and flayed alive up in Nineveh? Well, I'm sure that he is. But there's something else going on here too. Jonah is supposed to be giving a word from the God of Israel to the Ninevites. His job, he thought, was to give words of God to the people of Israel. That's what he assumed his vocation was. And yet here, he was being told by that God to speak to a foreign people, rank pagans, evildoers. And see, there's the sneaking suspicion in the back of Jonah's mind. What if the people of Nineveh, hear the word of the Lord and repent. After all, if God wanted to blot them out of history, he wouldn't send them a prophet to warn them. What if God is to be merciful to them? I mean, even sending a prophet to warn them, to tell them that God is displeased with them, is a mercy to them, isn't it? That's the awful possibility that Jonah can't face. His whole spirituality is really a spirituality of his own righteousness and privilege. He thinks that God is his God because of his ethnic identity and his passion for it. And in his heart, Jonah wishes for God to destroy the others that don't share that identity. And so Jonah doubts the wisdom and the goodness and the justice of God. How could God even contemplate having mercy on such a terrible place as that city, Nineveh? But that God, the tribal God, was never the God of Israel. The true God is the God that made all human beings. He made men and women in His image, all of them. He requires an answer from all of us, of whatever nation but he comes to us all with his offer of grace and mercy too. Can you face the true God who does not simply baptise your prejudices or confirm your biases? The Ninevites were were surely rebelling actively against God in their rampant and despicable evil. But Jonah was also rebelling and, of course, he was more passive-aggressive about it. He was using religion and ethnicity as a buffer against God. It's just as much running away from God as the Ninevites were turning their backs on God. Is that you? I don't think I've ever been a part of a single church that's been used like this as much as our dear St Mark's here. Someone once said to me that they were ethnically a St. Mark's Anglican. I thought that was a remarkable thing to say, as if that would impress God in some way. You see, what Jonah doesn't realise is that morality and even religion, perhaps especially religion, can be great ways to hide from God, just as much as rampant evil or open atheism can be. And one of the greatest places to hide can be in the church. But it's the moment that God reveals that he wants to have mercy that exposes us. How do we feel when we hear that the people we can't stand are on God's list Well, that's the real test for us, because if we feel gripped then, if we feel gypped then, I should say, then we haven't understood God's grace, which means we've actually got a different God other than the real one. Anyhow, Jonah gets into the boat thinking that he's going to escape from the Lord in some bizarre, self-deceptive way because surely the Lord only lives in Israel even though he must know that he doesn't. But Jonah cannot escape. The Lord sends, we, we hear, a huge storm on that boat and it looks like a shipwreck is coming with all the consequences we can imagine. And we know too well about the power of storms in Sydney, don't we? The pockmarks marks on the roofs of our cars testify to that. Just down in Darling Point Road, there's a car with its wind its uh, its sunscreen, its sun sunroof completely shattered from the power of a storm that came upon it just a couple of weeks ago. But we also know that life itself brings storms of many kinds. The spiritual truth that Jonah learns here is that disobedience to God brings storms. Sin against God is so deeply against the grain of who we're meant to be. It so runs against our design and against the design of the universe itself that when we sin, we invite chaos upon ourselves. As Dr. Timothy Keller says, every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. Every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. Now, The reverse isn't true. Every difficulty we experience in life is not the result of sin. That's very important to understand. We need to be clear about that. But every sin brings you difficulty. It violates your purpose and your nature when we choose to disbelieve that God is good and just and that he knows what is best for us. What we do is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And that's suicidal. It's self-destructive. We think that God's design for human sexuality is out of date and objectionable and that we can simply forego the tricky business of marriage. We think that we can act with callousness and vindictiveness in business, come here on Sunday and smile nicely at everybody and go out and be a complete jerk in the workplace. We think we can give ourselves over to rapacious greed, We think it's okay to be bossy and rude. We think we can take matters into our own hands without consequences. And yet when we do these things, we invite storms upon us. We unleash chaos. In my work as a pastor, I've seen this many times. The sad thing is when people know exactly what they're doing and yet do it anyway, I've seen people knowingly and openly defy God and completely wreck their family life, their personal life, isolate themselves from their friends, destroy even their work. The storm raged over them. But here's the thing. Again, to quote Timothy Keller, there's mercy deep inside the storms. There's mercy deep inside the storms. The storms that God sends us wake us to truths that we would never otherwise see. They are his ways of warning us and disciplining us. They tell us very often, go back, you are going the wrong way. They tell us, this is not how I've called you to live Sometimes these storms are the direct consequences of our sin, I've been saying. But even when they are not, they are often God's way of turning us to him. It certainly worked for the pagan sailors on Jonah's ship. By the end of the story, as they threw Jonah into the sea, reluctantly they were fearing the Lord and making sacrifices to him. It had wakened them to the truth of the true God. Perhaps today you are in the midst of one of those storms. It might be your health or your relationships or your work life. It could be an acute or a chronic situation. It could be the result of something you've done. It could be collateral damage from something someone else has done. It could be neither of those. God does not want us to suffer. But he uses our storms for the good of his people. As Paul says in Romans, God works all things for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so the question for Christians to ask in the midst of storms is what what is God teaching me in this situation? Well, eventually, Jonah was a bit reflective, finally, and recognised the gravity of his situation. He realises that he's underestimated the Lord. He's found himself rebuked by the sailors, the pagan sailors on the ship. He's found himself the prophet of God, the person who's got the degree in theology, being shown up by people who didn't even worship that God, the almighty God. Even they can see that they need divine help. They are better theologians than he is by far. And finally, they prize from Jonah who he is. I'm a Hebrew, he says. And Jonah remembers one of his Sunday school lessons that he should have had in his mind the whole time. I'm a Hebrew, he says in verse 9. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's right. The God that Jonah worships is the creator of the earth and the sea, whose mighty power is unleashed throughout the world that he's made. How foolish! How foolish! was Jonah to think that he could escape from his presence, that he could defy him. Sometimes, strangely, God uses the world to rebuke his people. Sometimes the church is guilty of missing something so obviously unjust and ungodly in its own behaviour, or so something so theologically untrue, that pagans can see it and remind us of it. We've seen this in our own times, of course. Scandalous behaviour in the church has been brought to account by the media and the government and by victims of such behaviour, and rightly so. And this works because the world that God made is consistent and coherent. Justice is not something hidden from view so that no one can see it. It's not revealed to Christians exclusively. The world itself is made with God's goodness and his justice in it. Now, of course, there's more that we could say here, but we shouldn't be surprised that pagans get it right. And we Christians shouldn't just ignore it when we are shown our own sins as if in a mirror by those outside. God's truth is embedded in the very fabric of things for all to see as the pagan sailors show Jonah. We'll hear in the New Testament Paul quote Greek and Roman poets, making theologically true statements as he seeks to bring the gospel to the to the people of Athens. And so, at last, Jonah gives up his flight away from God, his desperate running. There's finally something right in Jonah here. He can see that the sailors have done nothing wrong, and that it would be wrong to take them down with him to the depths. He offers himself up to the waves and throws himself finally on the mercy of God, which, of course, is what he should have done in the first place. But here's the challenge of the story to you and me. Because we think Jonah's supposed to be the hero. He's the prophet. He's the Israelite. He's the insider. He's supposed to be the good guy. But it turns out that he wants God on his own terms, not on God's. He's not willing to buy into the God of mercy because in the end, Jonah does not believe that he needs God's mercy. And that's key. He doesn't think he really needs mercy. He thinks, he presumes that he's right with God because of who he is. He thinks that he's above grace. And he's not. And that's what you and I need to know. It's the most basic spiritual truth. You can't complain when God shows his mercy to others because God showed his mercy to you. God's mercy is all you have. If we haven't grasped that truth about God, then we haven't grasped any truth about him. As the old hymn says, there's a wideness in God's mercy, a wideness. Like the wideness of the sea You kind of hope that Jonah reflected as he stood on the edge of the boat about to be cast off. Exactly this. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. In that wideness, there's space for you and just as well because without it, you have no chance. But there's also space if they repent.